Hello listeners, my name is Christopher Sibley Allen and while I'm waiting for my dinner to cook tonight I thought it would be a good chance to record a little intro to this podcast. This will be called the Healthcare Science Show and I'm a healthcare scientist. Who are we and what do we do? Well we're a group of people that work in hospitals and if today is anything to go by I spent some time looking for a metal trolley that went missing that it was quite important for one of the clinics that we were running. That was a very sad situation and then when I was looking for it in one of the rooms I turned on the light and found a fake arm which I presume someone was using to practice injections and things like that. But most of the time what we're really involved in is how science and technology are used in hospitals making sure that they're used both safely and uh, with good quality so that we get the best results for people that are coming in for different types of diagnosis and treatment. I've been thinking about doing a podcast for a a long time. Uh, Certainly what the world needs is another podcast because there's really just not that many out there. I'm on a program at the moment called the Higher Specialist Scientific Training Program, which is a program for scientists like myself in NHS hospitals around the UK to learn more about leadership and to develop in our specialisation. And uh, whilst I've been doing this, I've realised I'm now connected to quite a few people around the country who are doing various interesting things. I was speaking to a friend called Ashling, who will be the interviewee in this first episode. Ashling talks about radiotherapy and how radiotherapy treatments are planned using medical images. The process at the moment is quite manual one, and so she's been looking at implementing an artificial intelligence tool that may be a way of helping speed up the process and ultimately getting patients through to their cancer treatments faster. Ashling mentions a few different types of medical imaging and not everyone may be familiar with these. But essentially, they're all ways of making a a 3D map or image of somebody's body, which can be later used to plan radiotherapy treatments. She mentions CT, which stands for Computed Tomography, and that's a type of scan where X-rays are used to form the pictures. She also mentions MRI, which stands for Magnetic Resonance Imaging, and that's where magnetic properties of the human body are used to form the images. And finally, she also mentions PET, which stands for positron emission tomography. And that's where a type of radioactive drug can be injected into the body. And the radiation that it emits can be picked up by cameras outside the body. So keep those in mind as we go through the first section. So here is the first and maybe only episode of the Healthcare Science Show. Hi, Ashling. It's it's nice to see you. Can you tell me how your day is going? Hi, Chris. Nice to see you again too. Yeah, today is going pretty well for a Tuesday. I've got a nice sunset um, out the window, which is helping relax at the end of the day. And, and where are you based today? So I'm based in Elton Yalvin Hospital, which is in Derry, Stroke London Derry, in the northwest of Ireland. And you've uh, you've worked there for a number of years, is that right? I've worked here since 2016. So the cancer centre here only opened in 2016 and I came over during the commissioning phase. What do you do? I'm a radiotherapy physicist in the UK. We call us clinical scientists. 
So uh, when patients come along for their radiotherapy treatment, generally speaking, we look after a lot of the back-end equipment and maintenance and dosimetry. Sounds like that's enough to keep me busy. I did read uh, an article in the news last week on the BBC, and the NHS is definitely having a hard time getting people to their radiotherapy or cancer treatments uh, in, a, in a timely fashion. Is that something you've been experiencing where you work? Yes, absolutely. Staff shortages are nothing new in the NHS, but particularly in Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland in, I think, all areas of healthcare, but including radiotherapy, have some of the biggest backlogs in the UK and some of the biggest waiting times. Ultimately, we we know it's the patients that, that are suffering for that, and we do want to try and get everyone through as timely as possible. A lot of people who are listening to this might not really know what goes into to planning and delivering a radiotherapy treatment. So I wondered if you could outline the basic steps that someone who was having a treatment might have to go through. Yes, absolutely. So the first stage for a, a patient coming to radiotherapy is they'll meet their consultant and they'll get consent for the type of treatment the consultant thinks will best suit them. Um, and the next stage then is that they'll go through and have a CT scan. Uh, that's essentially like a picture of the body so that you know what you're aiming radiation at when you're doing the, the radiation therapy. Yes, that's right. It is. It's a, it's a 3D image of the person's body. It's exactly the same CT scanner as people will have had diagnostic CTs, probably when they're getting their tumours staged or diagnosed. But whenever we use it for radiotherapy, we put a flat couch on um, and we put our mobilisation equipment on it and we have lasers, and that helps us make sure that the patient position is reproducible. So um, physics aren't usually involved in scanning, but we are um, responsible for maintaining the CT. So we do a lot of QA on the scanner, make sure that all the immobilization is set up so that the reproducibility is going to be accurate when it gets to treatment, and we make sure that the scanner output and dose um, and image quality is all optimized for what we need. The next stage is we use the virtual image for the doctor will draw on it the outline of where they want us to put the radiation dose. So sometimes it's a whole organ um, or sometimes it's just the you know gross tumor volume that, that might be external to an organ. They might use additional imaging as well. So we might use MRI and they might use PET to help localize where the tumor volume is. And then we'll outline all the other organs around it as well. And the reason we do that is we can try to get as much dose as possible just into the tumour and not into all the surrounding organs. So that's really important. Um, I mean, it, it's important in the first place that we hit the target accurately, but for the patient's outcome and their, their quality of life after treatment, avoiding all the other organs is really important as well. And the tool that you're using at the end of this process is the, it's called a LINAC or a yeah. linear accelerator. That's right, isn't it? Um, what does that do exactly? The linear accelerator essentially generates a beam of radiation. So we burn off some electrons on an electron gun, which is similar to a filament in a light bulb. Um, and those electrons get accelerated to really close to the speed of light. We can either treat with electrons, um, but most often we treat with photons. So what happens is we hit the electron beam into a big tungsten target, and that creates the photon beam that we then treat the patient with. 
So patient won't see any of that, obviously. They're all very small particles um, and you can't see the radiation beam. But when the patient is on the bed, they can hear the machine starting up. The machine will rotate around the patient and it has internal parts called multi-leaf collimators, which are like lots of little um, fingers that move in and out. And that's what shapes the beam of radiation just into the place where we want to deliver it. Yeah, that's um, very high tech. And what's it like for the patient to, to have that? Some patients tolerate it very well. A lot of that is down to the radiographer team that are treating them because they often get to see the same people for you know a number of weeks and they get very comfortable with the team and they put them at ease and look after them really well and they, they build up a lot of rapport. But the treatment itself, you know, the patient won't see anything. They won't feel anything, generally speaking. Sometimes if we're treating a head and neck patient, so somewhere around the eyes, they might see the flashes of light that's um, triggered in their um, sensory sort of nerves in their eye. One of the hardest things is that the treatment couch is quite hard to lie on. And sometimes the rooms are very cold because we have to keep them cool to run the Linux because they generate a lot of heat. So the biggest complaint might be that it's too cold. Um, over time, you know, some patients will have some reaction to the radiation as it builds up over a number of treatment fractions. So as they come back each day, um, and that's what we're trying to minimize. So some patients will get a little, little reddening on the skin, similar to a sunburn. Um, but that's pretty uncommon now. Um, and there'll be some other minor side effects that people will experience just depending on where they're getting treated. And they, they often come in every day, isn't it? That's right. For us in a number of weeks, this, it goes on for quite a while, the treatment. Some treatments, yeah, go on for quite a while. One of the things that happened during the COVID pandemic is the breast treatment has routinely got reduced to five fractions, which means they come for five days of treatment where it was 15 before. So that had previously gone through trials as an established treatment technique, but it got introduced quite quickly during the pandemic. As much as possible, we're reducing how many fractions patients have to come for, um, as long as it's an equally good treatment outcome. Some of the longest treatments are probably head and neck, and they might have to come every day for six or seven weeks. Um, prostate treatments in the middle, they're about four weeks. So some patients are coming for a long time. Thank you for summing up some of the key steps there that happened during during radiotherapy and and really looking at that that planning process. My understanding is that you're interested in trying to speed that up. Yes. So generally speaking, from the time the patient gets their CT scan until they start treatment, ideally we'd like that to be less than three weeks. Um, depending on how aggressive the cancer is, some patients must have to start quicker than that. But it can be really hard to get them all through efficiently. So there's a couple of places in the system where you're waiting on a particular staff group who are inundated with work. And ultimately, that's, you know, it's bad for the staff morale because they like to see patients getting through it as quickly, as efficiently as possible. And obviously, it's not good for patients because that time waiting is very difficult mentally to cope with because they know that they need to start treatment do you remember any particular times, maybe some complicated cases where 
where it slows things down. Yeah, there, there's some cases where the patient's own anatomy will cause things to slow down, where they might have some swelling post-surgery or they might have to get teeth removed. Um, but also it might be that, you know, for a particular patient that there's queries about how's, what's the best way to treat them and there's different um complexities that need to be considered and maybe some other specialists that need to be brought into that conversation as well so there's um things that can hold up individual patients and then just sometimes staff resources can hold up sort of on a bulk level can just cause some blockages in the pathway that's not ideal thank you ashling for highlighting some of the challenges there and getting getting patients through this treatment planning process quickly what what ways or what tools do you have to kind of address that or try and improve on that? What I'm going to look at is applying some quality metrics and methodologies, um, like the lean methodology, to map out the whole treatment planning pathway, um, map out all the steps that are involved and all the checks that are involved and all the people that are involved, to first of all streamline the process and see are we overdoing things or double-checking things that we could um, reduce and make it more streamlined without reducing any safety barriers? Look at the staff that's involved and see if all the appropriate staff are doing the right tasks and if there's any other way of balancing out the workload, particularly where we've got some of the blockages in the system. And then the next thing will be to look at interventions we could make that would help make it work more efficiently. So, Can I just ask, Ashling? um, Lean is a tool I think that some people may be familiar with because it's quite widespread, isn't it? It's not just used in healthcare. It might it's a, it's a kind of business approach. It's definitely a business approach more than a healthcare thing. I think we have a realization that there's not a big pot of money coming to us to fix everything, so we're trying to do it with the resources that we have and apply these methodologies that have been used in industry. So Toyota are quite famous for how they've applied these types of methodologies and streamlining their processes and workflows um, and being able to take out the waste out of the system um, and make it all work more efficiently. Sounds challenging. Do you need specific people to help you with that? Yes, absolutely. The planning pathway is it's a very multidisciplinary approach. So we've got our clinicians, we have the physics group and the dosimetrists, and we've got the radiographers. It's going to be an approach where everyone will have to be involved in implementing any changes that, and making sure that we're all on board with doing it. Whenever you make a change, you need to make sure that you're not making something worse somewhere else. Um, but also our manager, she's very keen to see if we do need any interventions at different places and, and see the evidence for that. And that would help actually her business model for the department. When you talk about lean, it makes me think it's about efficiency and making sure, you know, even if we had infinite funding, we could actually still run the service well. Yes. I mean, I think the NHS could use a big pool of money. Let's just not rule that out. Um, But ultimately, it is the staff that that we need more than anything. And that's not necessarily just about having money. There's just a shortage of you know, trained, qualified people. Yeah. And you talked about interventions. So what kind of interventions could you could you make? 
So one of the things we're pretty good at as physicists and scientists is using technology. There's some things that we have in our system already that we could probably utilize better. For example, whenever the doctors are outlining the organs that we want to spare, not put dose into, we could automate that with AI type of auto-contouring systems. That process can take a couple of hours for a head and neck plan if there's lots of organs to outline. It takes a significant amount of time. That's for a human to do. Yeah, and these systems can do it within three minutes. I can imagine the cups of coffee alone would be quite expensive to, to do one plan. But if AI, you're saying, can do it in two to three minutes, that's uh, that's a lot quicker. It's just as long as it takes you to make your coffee. But we know that the NHS wouldn't work without coffee. See, <laughs> caffeine keeps us going. So, yeah, you wouldn't even get to drink it, but you could make it. I, I think one of the issues with AI is trust. And do you think the staff will trust it to do what is needed to get the best results? If we implement it and commission it, then the staff will certainly be able to trust it. And I suppose that's the main role of us as physicists is that we do a lot of testing before we implement any solutions. Um, Obviously, it'll be tested well by the manufacturers, but we always do in-house commissioning and testing. And we'll know before we ever use it on a patient clinically, we'll know what the limitations are, we'll know what it's good at, and we'll know what it's less good at. We can always edit what it comes out with. So the contours that it produces will still get signed off by a qualified clinician. And if they're not happy with it, we can make edits to that so that it will always be as good as what a human would have done in the first place. The benefit is that as well as saving a lot of time, it's also going to be the same for you know each time it goes through it's going to give you a reproducible type of result where if we've got different dosimetrists and different doctors outlining the same things, you always see more variation. So it's going to actually, we think, reduce some of that variability. Yeah, it sounds like you've got that that opportunity to check the work of the AI. When you, you hear the stories about things like uh, self-driving cars, there's not, there's not a lot of margin for uh, mistakes to happen there. But when you've kind of put your AI to task to draw around the different organs in the body on, on your CT scan, it's nice to hear that you still have that human in the chain because you can imagine it might do all sorts of weird and wacky things. And it's quite hard to predict, I suppose. Yes, it can be. Um, so, the, I mean, old older models used to be what was known as an Atlas-based model, which would have just been, you know, taking hundreds of models of patients that were outlined before and getting them all together and basically doing a best guess for the next one that comes along. Um, and the AI models now go much more into what they call as deep learning. So they, they they don't have the same type of input. It'll come with a model and that model will relearn itself, you know, continuously. So it's it's learning, deep learning continuously. How you take your AI to school and teach it how to do the tasks that it's needed to do. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it's, it's like that. You get an output and you will tell it whether you're happy or not with it and it will learn and it will grow on that for, for the future iterations. There are other interventions that you were going to talk about, Ashley. Yeah, so the next part of planning then after we have the contours is actually putting the plan on and sculpting the dose. And there's lots of ways that we can improve that process as well. There's an option called MCO, which is multi-criterial optimization, which basically means we can move some sliders around 
and look at different options for the plan on the fly really quickly. Because sometimes you have to make compromises in one area to get the dose in a different area. Because of the physics of where the dose goes, it has to go somewhere. So the MCO kind of lets you look at it with the doctor and tweak it in real time so that you can see what the compromises are going to do to the plan overall. Um, And then another thing that we can do for that planning process is to use scripting. And this is something that's quite common now. So it's essentially writing a little piece of code that automates part of that planning process. For example, for every patient that comes for prostate treatment, they're going to get an individual plan, but the dose that we want to give to all their other organs, the limiting dose, that's the same for everybody. So actually prostate plans, they're all actually quite similar. So it will be fairly straightforward to script that kind of plan so that it's generated fairly automatically in a quite quick time. What's the level of experience or knowledge that you need to do something like that? It sounds sounds akin to computer programming, which of course can be very difficult if you don't know the language. It can, it can be. Script, scripting is, is a code, but um, it's built into the user interface and the company that we have do some training. So they'll teach us how to do that scripting in our system. Some people are afraid that maybe this is taken the jobs of the planners but I think there's absolutely no chance of us um, taking away anybody's jobs by this form of automation or scripting. How how would you communicate that to them because I guess that's kind of a almost a political challenge. It is and it's a real fear for some people and you know especially in in the age that we're in job stability is quite important to people but this is just a tool that will help make the process efficient And it means that all the patients are getting the same level of quality built into their plan, regardless of how experienced the planner is for the routine type of planning. And what that means is that the dosimetrists and the planners and the doctors have more time available for the more complex cases. When you're talking about sculpting doses, it it sort of uh, evokes pictures of artists. It's it's kind of an art as well as a science. Yeah, well, that part of it definitely is because, you know, you are taking the image and kind of drawing on the dose where you want it to go. And in the computer program, we've built in all the physics that generates how that dose could get there. But yeah, there's a bit of an art form in terms of what that looks like on the image. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to say about that, the, the implementation or the kind of tools that you have. No, I suppose the only other thing that's interesting about the project is that the first stage was I worked with an MSc student at Manchester University who actually built a model of our pathway. Um, And he's able to simulate virtual patients going through the pathway and simulate all the backlogs in his model based on some of the data that we have in our treatment planning system. Oh, that's quite cool. It sounds a bit like Theme Hospital, which people of a certain generation may remember as a computer game. Um, Yeah. Sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. How are you kind of feeling about the, the, the road ahead? It's a lot to fit into a short time. But there's definitely some quick wins. So it's encouraging. And I think we have a really good team here that really want to see things uh, as efficient as possible. So everyone's actually quite enthusiastic about getting on board and being able to implement some changes along the way. And 
importantly, measure what those changes do. So I'm positive. I'm really positive that we can definitely make some gains and it will be better for our patients coming through. And it'll also be better for our staff and help maybe ease some pressures in some areas and overall make people feel a little bit more job satisfaction. So I'm very positive that there's really good outcomes that we could get from it. Where do you get your information about these tools and products and where would you hope to communicate the results of your project? So scientific literature is where we start and where I start in terms of looking at what's been done before. Um, There's also a lot of books on the market about the methodology and about Lean and about Toyota. A lot of that is open source now, so anyone can Google it. And some, some of it's really accessible to read and understand. And hopefully the output at the end will be in a similar type of peer-reviewed journal. Brilliant. Yeah. And do you have uh, conferences where you might talk about things like this in the, in the radiotherapy community where you will meet up? Yes, definitely. There's, there's lots of different conferences where we would um, discuss this type of streamlining and workflow type of project. It's more general as well in the sense of outside radiotherapy. So it fits into maybe some of the quality conferences out there in terms of how other people apply the lean or quality methodologies. That's a kind of sum up question. Um, what do you think the ideal world would be from your perspective when, when looking at the future state of radiotherapy planning? Ideal world. I mean, the ideal world is that all of our patients are getting to treatment as soon as they possibly can because that's a very anxious time for patients. Some people are absolutely fine with it, um, but other people are just quite conscious that they need a treatment and hasn't started yet. There are reasons that we have to have delays. Like we do have to wait a certain amount of time after surgeries and things like that. Um, So it's never going to be instantaneous. But as soon as it's possible to get people treated, that's what we'd like to do. This was the Healthcare Science Show. Thanks again to Ashling for sharing her knowledge, experience and expertise from the world of radiotherapy physics. Thanks to the music artist Nihilor Kirkosamayo for providing the excellent background music. And finally, thank you for listening yourselves all the way to the end. See you next time.